Historians of the settler colonies have primarily focused on the white inhabitants within it or their interaction with indigenous peoples. Yet it is only by studying the interaction between Asian and European migrants within the British world that we can understand why the empire became less and less significant to settler colonies and why alternative imagined communities, both national and racial, evolved. The centrality of whiteness and Britishness and the occasional conflict between these identities largely depended on an Asian other, while indigenous peoples were the others of the early 19th century. Each settler colony had a distinct and mostly a decreasing native problem, whereas Asian migration increasingly became the issue which could unite disparate parts of the settler colonies. First, this paper will explain how Asian indentured laborers came to be seen as both desirable and threatening to white dominance in the mid-19th century. It will then chart how networks of people and information spread shared concepts of Asians, which transcended class barriers, uniting the working classes with the intellectual and political elites in the self-governing colonies through a shared concern. The paper concludes by demonstrating how the unifying aspects of whiteness and Britishness held together some parts of the empire while driving apart others, forming the basis for its ultimate demise. In the 19th century, about 50 million Europeans, 50 million Chinese, and 30 million Indians migrated globally. Adam McEwen has calculated that of these, about 750,000 Chinese and 1.5 million Indians were formerly indentured to the European employers for use in their colonies. Indentured laborers were used in the Dutch East Indies first in the 1600s. In the British colonies, it was only following the 1833 abolition of slavery that plantation owners looked at Asia's sizable and impoverished population there. The Mauritian and West Indian sugar industries were the first in the British colonies to successfully secure labor from British-controlled areas of India, like Peru and Cuba, imported Chinese. As shipping became more organized, cheaper, and speedier mid-century, indentured labor was also adopted in places without a history of slavery. Small numbers of Pacific Islanders and Chinese were imported into New South Wales between 1848 and 1852 to replace convict labor and assist the European wool industry. Such labor assisted colonial businesses and European settlers initially accepted it as a commodity necessary for economic success because the climate allegedly did not allow for whites to do physical labor or because of a shortage of any sort of settler. While most of this indentured labor was at first uncontroversial, Free Asian migration, especially Chinese, to the self-governing colonies increased dramatically from around mid-century. Free is a slight misnomer, but essentially meant they operated their own loan systems to organize and control migration outside the direct control of Europeans. Indentured laborers, too, could become free once their period of service had ended, and increasing numbers chose to do this. Likewise, free migrants tended to follow their indentured fellow nationals, regularly working as traders or artisans, either servicing coolie needs or benefiting from the good reputation for work which their indentured predecessors had. From 1849, a series of gold discoveries in California, British Columbia, and Australia attracted these free Chinese men to work, placing them in direct competition with European settlers. In 1851, the Chinese government repealed the law which had made migration outside China a criminal offense, punishable by death, adding to the flow out outwards. The long European tradition of stereotyping the Orient and the East already existed in the settler colonies before they were physically a physical reality. Stuart Crichton Miller, for instance, has demonstrated how stereotypes spread in America, gathered from travelers, traders, missionaries, and newspapers, long before the Chinese had physically arrived. The predominant view regarded China as exotic, backward, only semi-civilized, and in some ways rather barbaric country. 
The place and its people were subjects of curiosity and occasional superiority, but certainly not a threat. However, it was one thing for coolies to fill manual jobs which whites could or would not fill, but quite another for them to compete in the more lucrative industries of trade and gold mining. From 1849, pre-existing stereotypes about the Chinese nation were applied and adapted to the new influx of Chinese migrants. One phrase in particular was often repeated over the next 50 years to sum up feelings towards Chinese migrants. The Chinese were disliked as much for their virtues as for their vices. They, had wanted a manual, as, they were wanted as manual laborers because they were perceived as hard-working and cheap. But it was one thing for coolies to fill manual jobs, which whites would not fill, and quite another for their presence to increase competition in the more lucrative industries of trade and gold mining, or to lower wages and raise unemployment amongst white men. To quote Andrew Marcus, the struggle was perceived not simply as between Europeans and Chinese, but between white labor and capitalists using Chinese as their pawns to lower wages and prevent the spread of labor unions. And because these things were broadly perceived to be happening throughout the self-governing colonies and in the United States, a similar imagery was evoked to describe the solutions, to describe their situations. This was fostered by a common language and a steady flow of migration and information, especially between the mines. The increasingly international business of book and newspaper publishing and dissemination, higher literacy rates, and the improved speed of railway and ship travel only aided this flow. Steamboat services regularly carried news and people along the, the um, Pacific and Indian coastlines of the self-governing colonies in California. Border control was almost non-existent. Jonathan Hislop has famously explained that it was this conjuncture which created a context in which defining themselves in their labor market interests as white could seem an advantageous option to organized workers. California was the first to implement legal restrictions on Chinese migrants through local mining codes in the 1850s, though illegal exclusion of Chinese from mining communities had begun in 1849, almost as soon as any Chinese arrived. Despite this, by 1860, the Chinese population in California was 35,000, roughly a quarter of the mining population, and the most clearly foreign-looking of the diverse group there. In Victoria, by 1858, the Chinese were estimated at 40,000, or 24.5% of miners. When the earnings of all diggers declined from an estimated $780 in 1852 to $284 in 1854, widespread complaints and violent illegal exclusions of Chinese resulted. While there were few violent attacks on the Chinese, in 1855, the colony passed a bill modeled on the one in California, which provided for a poll tax on Chinese immigrants and restricted the number of Chinese brought into the colony by any ship. After similar events in New South Wales, they also passed restrictive legislation in 1861, modeled in turn on Victoria's. The appeal of Chinese exclusion was not limited to mining communities, however. Like their white counterparts, numerous Chinese drifted into factories, railway construction, and farm work, some even established their own businesses in direct competition with white settlers. With growing numbers of white migrants also arriving and looking for work, wider sections of the white settler population demonstrated antipathy towards Asian migration. The alleged intelligence of the Asian populations, their numbers and low standard of living threatened white supremacy in the settler colonies in a way that indigenous populations were rarely seen able to do. While employers were largely satisfied, European migrants who felt their jobs were being taken away were not. Companies several times used Chinese men to replace striking Europeans. They also increasingly replaced factory workers in semi-skilled and skilled positions in Australia, the US, and Canada. One Nevada union complained in 1869 that 
Capital is decreed that Chinese shall supplant and drive hence the present race of toilers. Can we compete with a barbarous race, devoid of energy and careless of the state's wheel? Senator Perkins of California described the situation as a fundamental question of racial dominance. When two races as radically different as the Chinese and Americans freely intermingle, there are only two possible outcomes, assimilation or subjugation, dominate or be dominated. The very idea of white colonies depended on the premise that multiracial democracy was an impossibility, as Lake and Reynolds have recently shown. This belief grew out of the great tragedy of radical reconstruction in the United States and was popularized by the British liberal politician and historian James Bryce, whose American Commonwealth was taken up as a Bible by white nation builders in Australia and South Africa when it was published in New York in 1888. These ideas were swiftly adopted to fit the more widespread threat of Asian migration and lent an academic rigor and intellectual justification to exclusion. The apparent alignment of these ideas with the rise of social Darwinist ideas about survival of the fittest only further added to such work. Perhaps the most unifying factor of all was the fear of disease. A judge in the British Columbian Supreme Court explained in an official Canadian report in 1885 that the air is polluted by the disgusting offal with which they are surrounded and the vile accumulations are apt to spread fever and sickness in the neighbourhood. When there was an outbreak of smallpox in Sydney in 1880, a mob attack on the Chinese community was only narrowly averted while an anti-Chinese league was established as a result, which advocated the exclusion of all Asians from Australia. When news of this reached British Columbia and Natal, there were several sympathetic anti-Chinese marches and newspaper articles started linking regularly disease with Asian migrants. The increasing use of censuses only further provoked anti-Asian feeling. From the 1840s, statistics charted huge increases in Asian populations, causing panics. This only increased as these populations spread and Asian nations like Japan and China increasingly asserted their sovereignty. The statistics, however accurate they actually were, proved an increase of Asians at a time when Canada's population lost more migrants than it gained between 1861 and 1901, and Australia, after the 1880s, had a stagnant European population. In southern Africa, not only were whites outnumbered by native Africans, the two white races were themselves divided and fighting. In Natal, Indians outnumbered all white migrants, and the indigenous Africans outnumbered all other groups by a significant margin. Although Europeans were reluctant to accept such an idea, white settlers increasingly described Asian migration as an invasion by stealth, a view most famously expressed by the intellectual politician Charles Pearson in his book National Life and Character in 1893 which used censuses and other hard evidence to prove that white supremacy cannot be assumed and that its greatest menace came from China. When coupled with fluctuating economies and mobile white populations, such beliefs led to expulsion and exclusion. The Chinese were only 1.75% of the entire New Zealand population in 1870, but 6% of the population in Otago. In an area where the number of white settlers were already almost equal to Maori residents, the Chinese population was seen to tip the balance away from the white populace. So to cite the small numbers, the colony implemented a series of restrictions from 1881. Even Tasmania and Western Australia, which had less than 1,000 Chinese in each, passed legislation in 1886 and 1887 respectively to demonstrate solidarity with their neighbours. Such concerns spread anti-Chinese feelings beyond merely competing working-class Europeans to the more settled, middle, and upper classes and forced the governments of these places to take legislative action. 
Unfortunately, colonials increasingly came to feel that it was the British government itself which was preventing them from securing their white democratic potential. While the majority of white residents in settler colonies were being run over to the notion of Chinese exclusion, there was widespread support in Britain for a legal tradition which, at least in theory, was racially blind. This was a tradition of national pride which British humanitarians obsessively sought to protect. Indeed, a great deal of the British coverage derogatorily described colonial policies as a product of democracies which allowed ill-informed and hysterically prejudiced working-class people to have political power. This reflected the lack of understanding in Britain about why the Chinese seemed so threatening to their colonial cousins. After all, until the 20th century, Asians were simply not a physical reality in most Britain's lives. Most of the Chinese and Japanese in Britain were sailors, Indians were slightly more numerous, but were usually either from educated elites or limited to port cities. Furthermore, most of the coverage of Asians, excepting that which came from the colonies, was detached from any notion of an Asian menace which threatened Britain directly. Charles Dickens Jr. had introduced the image of the East End Chinese opium den in London in the 1870s, but Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera Mikado was a more common view. G. M. Trevelyan expressed a widespread contemporary view when he wrote that there was a far greater danger from the white European influx into Britain or for French and German competition than from any yellow peril. Periodically, events like the 1857 Indian Mutiny or the 1900 Boxer Rebellion could create a brief shared concern over the Asian menace, but such fears quickly diffused. This is why so many of the colonies copied each other's legislation or looked for inspiration from the U.S., which also had to deal with the central government who often vetoed local race-based legislation. Such pacts did not signal, of course, that the colonies agreed on what course of action to take, but they were acknowledgments that similar situations existed in each colony, that some exclusionary measures were desirable, and that a common effort was needed to implement exclusion effectively. Nor was this an indication of specifically nationalist sentiments. Most colonials still adhered strongly to their Britishness. Indeed, Lord Carrington, the governor of New South Wales, explained to the colonial office that if these colonies are to be an offshoot of Britain, they must be kept clear of Chinese migration. Maintaining their Britishness required exclusion. This widespread appeal to the working class as well as the political elites in the colonies, because, as David Walker has said about Australia, if Asia was viewed as the centre of a coming world conflict, it followed that Australia was at the cutting edge of the struggle for racial supremacy rather than an insignificant spot on the remote periphery of the British Empire. And we all like to feel important. Such feelings became all the more important after the British had signed the 1894 Treaty with Japan. London had included an article which gave the self-governing colonies the option of ratifying it. While Queensland later did for economic reasons, the other Australian colonies agreed at the 1896 meeting of Australian premiers not just to refuse the treaty, but to legislate against Japanese migrants. The New South Wales legislature then passed a bill to exclude all Asians and Africans in 1896. However, as the legislation referred so specifically to restricting immigration on the basis of race and made no exceptions for British subjects or allies, the governor of the colony reserved it for colonial office approval, an exceptionally rare decision. New Zealand also tried to pass an Asiatic restriction bill in 1896, which would have kept out all Asians. The entire situation put the British government in an awkward position, however, as Chinese and Japanese officials, and even the Indian office, protested against the legislation. Nor did the British public support such race-based law. 
While the colonial office debated how best to resolve the situation, the colonial backwater of Natal came up with an ingenious, if controversial, compromise. While the traditional image of Natal during this period is of an almost purely first-generation British population deeply loyal to Britain, by 1897, such was the scale of public hysteria, after several reports of plague arriving from India, locals began to threaten cessation if Britain refused to allow restrictive legislation. The Natal Prime Minister, Harry Escombe, however, wanted to avoid a revolt, which would at the very least lead to his loss of position. He was forced to imagine a way to incorporate the existing legislative aims while taking into account the British government's refusal to sanction race-based exclusion, especially of British subjects. He copied, almost word for word, the U.S. Immigration Act of 1891, which restricted classes of migrants such as the infirm criminals and paupers. He also lifted from the American legislation an educational test first put before the U.S. Congress in 1891, which called for a reading and writing test for all immigrants over 16 years of age in their native language, itself based on earlier literacy legislation introduced into the southern United States meant to decrease the number of voting African Americans. Escombe considered Indians too clever for the same sort of legislation, so he wrote that the test would be in any language of Europe. This would enable an immigration official to make the test easier or harder, depending on their own views of the desirability of the potential migrant. In this legislation, the Colonial Office also recognized the perfect way to avoid conflict. Joseph Chamberlain, Secretary of State for the Colonies, wanted to bring about closer union between Britain and its settler colonies, estranging them over immigration matters would scupper vital schemes like tariff reform, which had become a personal crusade. He saw the colonies of white settlement, not India, as potentially the greatest asset the British Empire possessed. At the 1897 Colonial Conference to mark Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, Chamberlain famously told the colonial premiers, we quite sympathize with the determination of the white inhabitants of these colonies, which are in comparatively close proximity to hundreds of millions of Asiatics, that there should not be an influx of people alien in civilization, alien in religion, alien in customs, whose influx, moreover, would most seriously interfere with the legitimate rights of the existing labor population. But we ask you also to bear in mind the traditions of the empire, which make no distinction in favor of or against race or color. While not specifically turning down the New South Wales legislation, he proposed the Natal language test as a more acceptable model. Although neither he nor the Natal legislature denied that it was formulated to keep out Asians, he could still deny accusations that it racially targeted them. The legislation was not immediately appreciated by settler colonials, however. They were being asked to adopt dishonest legislation, a reflection of what Robert Huttenbach has described as a rather undefined dedication to fair play. Nor did all colonials believe in the general exclusion of Asian migrants. Companies continued to find the steady supply and cheapness of Asian labor attractive, and even in Natal, those who wished to halt the indenture scheme altogether were in the minority. And next one. This is um, from the City Bulletin, which is a very famous kind of um, labor uh, journal. And as you can see in this cartoon, Australia's lie for Britain's sake. It isn't the color I object to, that's nothing, it's the spelling. And it's this kind of awareness that they're being forced to, to act out the charade um, that is obviously to keep out the people that they don't want. It is about race, but um, they're having to kind of, yeah, a lie essentially to um, get Britain to, to allow them to do this. 
However, with Chamberlain making clear that the Natal language test was the only acceptable legislation to the colonial office, the voting public gradually accepted it. By 1907, all of the white colonies adopted some form of the Natal language test. The British government was essentially giving the self-governing colonies free reign to choose their own identity, one which was not based on their position within the British Empire. Politically active colonials were legally emphasizing the difference between being part of a British or white world and being part of a multiracial British Empire. From this point onwards, successfully negotiating a single imperial identity or citizenship would be impossible despite repeated efforts. While Chamberlain had prevented the language of racism from appearing in the legislation, the spirit of division remained. These trends grew more pronounced in the first decade of the 20th century. While everyone at the 1897 Colonial Conference had agreed that closer union was desirable and that, when possible, neighboring colonies should group together under a federal union, the method could not be agreed upon. These issues came to the fore when, in 1904, the Transwell government gained parliamentary approval to import thousands of Chinese indentured laborers to work on the gold mines. To local officials, this was one experiment in a swathe of efforts to rebuild the local economy and pay back some of the crippling debts after the South African War between 1899 and 1902. Anti-Asiatic concerns did exist but were placated by including legal requirements that all Chinese were to be limited to unskilled kafir work and repatriated at the end of the contracts. The situation was complicated, however, because Chamberlain had declared from the outset that we should treat the Transvaal, though a crown colony, wherever possible as if it were self-governing. But the Transvaal legislature, which approved the scheme, was appointed by the British administration there. They were not elected. The South African War had been fought with the promise that it could become another British labour paradise like Australia. It seemed to many that the British government was instead working in partnership with mining magnates to undermine the position of white and African laborers alike and could ruin South Africa's potential as a white colony. The other settler colonies all commented publicly on the situation, reflecting the growing tradition of group decision-making, especially on matters of Asian migration, as witnessed at intercolonial conferences. This issue, however, also highlighted the limitations of consulting with each other, the Cape Parliament passed an almost unanimous resolution in the House of Assembly which condemned the scheme, and the Prime Minister of the Cape Colony even warned that, in light of heightened feelings, the colonial office was not to advise, was not advised not to delay approving their own Natal-style language test, or the colony might revolt. The Prime Minister of New Zealand also convinced the Australian Prime Minister to jointly protest after both parliaments independently passed almost unanimous resolutions against the scheme. The petitions and the parliamentary resolutions both argued that, at the very least, such an important decision was not for an imperial government to make, only for a locally elected government. If that was not possible, they argued that Australia and New Zealand should be allowed to undertake their own investigation as to whether Chinese labour was really needed, since their experiences made them better qualified to decide on the matter than any British official. Not all the settler colonies were comfortable with the overt efforts to interfere in the matter, however. Canadian opinion largely held that they did not have the right to interfere in a local matter, and they were willing to believe the imperial government's assurances that local approval was paramount. The Canadian Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier had most of his support from within Quebec, a province with little interest in Chinese migration or in securing specifically British colonies, nor were labour organisations powerful enough to make their campaigns against the importation politically significant in Canada. 
Indeed, his and the government's refusal to interfere also reflected the sensitive nature of anti-Chinese feelings within Canada. Several times, the judiciary and central parliament had been at war with British Columbia over control of immigration policy. The rest of the provinces simply did not share its concern regarding Asian immigration. Consequently, British Columbia independently set a cable to the High Commissioner in South Africa to oppose the scheme, and some local protests occurred in Toronto and other large cities, but there was no widespread objection. However, the Canadian government does still cable Britain to let them know that they're against interfering. And Natal's government chose an equally neutral position, that they too cabled the colonial office to inform them of this. As the High Commissioner explained, in Natal, which itself de depends on prosperity on such labour, there is a marked unwillingness to interfere in the controversy going on in the Natal, in the Transvaal. Furthermore, a large portion of Natal's income came from the goods shipped to the Transvaal mines. There could be a significant profit from the scheme for the colony. Consequently, the Natal public were largely silent. There were none of the petitions seen elsewhere. The lack of agreement demonstrated the wide gap between the imagined British white community of the self-governing colonies and the actual differences which separated them. Indeed, Southern Africans continually reiterated their frustration with the ignorance shown both in Britain and the other colonies. One British miner in the Transvaal noted, They seem to know a good deal more about the question in England than we do out here. Let them attempt to stop and thwart us out here. We will have none of it. Clearly, this situation was not an advertisement for formalizing imperial federation, though it did increase some national fervor in South Africa itself. John X. Merriman, the leader of the South African Party in the Cape and long-standing MP, argued that the entire issue over whether to allow Chinese labor was really about whether the development of South Africa is to proceed on the lines of one of the great self-governing colonies or whether it is to become a dependency. He stressed his belief in the absolute self-government of South Africa on the lines of Australia and Canada, with no dictation from Downing Street or Fleet Street, and still less from Throgmorton Street, referring to the London Stock Exchange. Another Oxford graduate and liberal, Professor H.E.S. Fremantle, claimed it unjustifiable to leave a non-representative government the decision of such a question as the present one. In a letter published in London and the Cape, in Cape Town, he claimed that the assumption of future federation gave all parts of South Africa the right to have the say in the matter. And this is from a uh, Johannesburg uh, protest in 1906 against Chinese labor. And you can see it's, it's a very um, oh, kind of working class, he says it's mostly labor uh, workers. So there's a few Africans down there largely white that you can see in the picture and is this what we spilled our blood for we want to be governed here not 6,000 miles away not in Britain and this is, is something that's very representative of the sort of attitudes you get um, throughout South African groups and this debate featured prominently within Britain as well where colonial campaigners for the first time steered, stirred up intense British public interest in the issue of Asian migration Labour connection proved particularly important in spreading the debate and fostering a sense of shared purpose amongst British labourers globally. In 1904, there were over 5,000 Australians on the RAND and about 7,000 Cornish miners, out of an estimated 16,000 white mine workers. The Australians had brought anti-Chinese feelings with them, and the Cornish ensured many of these feelings were reiterated in Cornwall. One Cornish miner with experience in the Transvaal told his British readers, in President Kruger's time, the mine owners could only employ whites and blacks, and at good wages. That was why Kruger had to go. 20,000 soldiers died that fight, 
Fitzpatrick, Rudd, and the rest might get their work done by Chinese slaves. These are famous mine owners. Another British miner in the Transvaal wrote a pamphlet specifically for British working class men. Each colony is self-governing, but in the strict internal affairs of South Africa, the people are not self-governing. They have no South African government with which to govern. At present, they are governed through, not by, the High Commissioner, who is not independent, but is subject to the control of the Secretary of State for the Colonies at Westminster, who again is subject to the control of the Imperial Parliament. Now this is where you, the man in the street, come in. You elect that Parliament, and neither you nor they know much about South Africa. At a time when suffrage in the UK was finally beginning to match that in the colonies, and with labour organisations increasing in strength, this was an attractive message to many. White male suffrage was depicted as the only protection against capitalist power of the government. As the spectator explained, the issue was not simply an empty show of union support either. For the first time, significant numbers of Britons were beginning to see that Asian migration might threaten them too. While a caver could never take the place of a skilled miner, the Chinaman will be able to do so. The opinion is freely expressed that in six months there will be plenty of Chinamen well able to replace the skilled Cornish miner. And that's in Cornwall, in Britain. Rumours even circulated in Britain that the government was planning to import Chinese into Britain next, which Lloyd George particularly emphasised in Wales. Such concerns spread with what Jonathan Hislop has called a common ideology of white labourism from the colonies and made it relevant to Britons. The widespread acceptance in Britain for the first time that Asian migration and British imperial rule could not coexist was an important shift in attitude. For the first time, Britons felt themselves to be threatened too. Those who did not feel endangered as such felt the entire use of indentured labour tainted Britain's humanitarian credentials, already damaged after the controversial South African War. The subsequent liberal landslide required the new government to take decisive action against Chinese indentured labour. Upon taking office, they quickly granted responsible government to the Transvaal. The newly elected Transvaal Legislature's first act in 1907 banned all future Asian migration, the next act required existing Asian residents to register, and the third cancelled the labour importation scheme. You can see how important they place this, like the first three acts they do, I mean, it pretty much dominates the first couple months of independence. And Jan Smuts even bragged that this was the severest legislation ever passed in the British Empire. Furthermore, the restrictions proved effective. All the indentured Chinese in the Transvaal were repatriated. Fresh Asian migrants were almost entirely prevented from migrating to South Africa, a position not altered till the 1990s. The situation had revealed deep divisions amongst the settler colonies in Britain, but it also better integrated Britons within a shared white identity threatened by Asian migration. Opponents in South Africa had utilized their British contacts to stir up interest amongst the imperial electorate. The Liberals had effectively used these networks to win the election. Even the Cape, Natal, Australia, New Zealand and Canadian governments had utilized the issue for their own political ends. The scheme later became anthologized in labor histories throughout the British world. Unfortunately, it also made clear the limitations of too much involvement in each other's affairs and made the British government reluctant to meddle in any migration policies in the self-governing colonies. While previously opposed to the white Australia policy and continuing to criticise Labour's political influence there, the Times was led to write in support of Australia's Alien Immigration Act, finally. Referring to the experiences in the Transvaal, by 1907 it said, Mistaken or not, the Alien Immigration Act represents an attempt to keep an English land for the English people, and so had to be respected. The colony should not be let alone, as long as Britain's relations with India and other foreign powers were not too badly affected. 
The British press and public started emphasizing the inclusive factors of Britishness or whiteness as they themselves became more reconciled to the ideas of immigration exclusion and the Asian menace. And I did have stuff about Alien um, Act in Britain itself, if anyone wants to talk about that afterwards. The situation continued to fragment the empire as a coherent unit in 1907, when the US and Japan almost went to war. The Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902, which brought Britain out of its splendid isolation, allowed London for defensive purposes to remove naval units wholesale from the Pacific if British security was threatened by war in Europe. Thus, Britain now relied on the Japanese to maintain its maritime interests in East Asia. Such an arrangement could theoretically mean Japanese warships would dock in colonial ports in the Pacific, and that colonial soldiers could be asked to fight alongside the Japanese against Americans. These possibilities proved even more menacing coming in the wake of Japan's surprise victory over Russia in 1905 and the largely successful Chinese boycott of U.S. goods at that same year. Pearson's prediction that Asia would awake and challenge the West seemed to be coming true. A visiting Canadian official warned the British government that if war broke out between the U.S. and Japan, the residents of Vancouver would not trust a Japanese ship near the coast. They would turn to the U.S. for protection. A war between the U.S. and Japan would be the beginning of the disruption of the Canadian Dominion. British officials assured him that their treaty with Japan would never see Britain side with Japan against white people, but the hysteria continued. Australia was also worried about Britain's alliance with Japan, the situation in the Transvaal, and, angered by perceived colonial office snobbery towards the self-governing colonies, the Prime Minister chose to threaten a partnership with the U.S. Deakin circumvented the colonial office and asked Theodore Roosevelt directly to send the U.S. fleet to Australia on its voyage around the world, despite the fact that he had no right to do this in an episode that becomes quite famously known as the Great White Fleet. He explained to the New York Times that the visit intended to show England, I cannot say a renegade mother country, that these colonies are white man's country. New Zealand followed suit, as the Wellington Post explained, because America was the champion of white ascendancy in the Pacific and represented the ideas of Australia and New Zealand far better than Britain. Canada chose not to invite the U.S. Navy. Their proximity to the U.S. complicated their relationship in a way that the other Pacific colonies did not experience. The British government's response was to make, take an increasingly hands-off approach towards governing the self-governing colonies. Already by 1906, the colonial office had decided to focus on colonial, later imperial conferences rather than pushing for imperial federation. In 1907, the settler colonies were given their own sub-department within the colonial office and were renamed to the Dominions to signify their equality with Britain. They were even granted the right to drop their own treaties, largely in response to the anti-Japanese agitation. This policy was clearly at the expense of India, for in raising the profile of the dominions, they also marginalized India and Britain's other tropical colonies in imperial debate. Indeed, despite repeated Indian requests, the fact that India was in the group of serious unrest and a campaign of assassination, they were not named one of the dominions. Instead, soon after the 1907 colonial conference, there was a colonial office investigation into Asian migration to the self-governing colonies, which concluded that the introduction of the Chinese into the Transvaal had strengthened the bias against colored immigration in the self-governing dominions, and if we do not take the initiative, the United States may stand out on and through this question as the leaders of the English-speaking peoples in the Pacific as against the colored races. The threat of losing the Dominions just when they had demonstrated their worth in military and economic matters in the South African War, 
and the belief in Britain that the colonies actually would cede and join with the U.S. if thwarted in their exclusionary aims castrated future British governments from being able to interfere. The writer of the report, Sir Charles Lucas, was put in charge of the new Dominion's department, where he continued to reiterate his view. If Britain were to confront the Dominions over the race question, they might break away and form an alliance with the United States, creating a new political organization having its roots in race affinity that would be directly opposed to the idea of imperial citizenship, which took no account of race. This belief became the bedrock of future imperial policy. Britishness remained the primary identity for many settlers, but this fact could not be taken for granted. The notion of imperial citizenship thus lost all meaning, despite the colonial office continuing to insist hollowly that Indians and other non-whites were not second-class imperial subjects. The 1911 Imperial Conference, renamed because imperial sounded more like a meeting of equals, unsurprisingly failed to define imperial naturalization, nor could the Dominions agree about whether a uniform immigration policy would be needed. The Dominions were happy to embrace partnership with Britain to an extent and could envision working with each other, but not to embrace the rest of the empire. The British government chose to accept this and appease India in smaller, usually less successful ways. Asian migration largely ceased from 1907, fundamentally changing the population landscapes of the Dominions. Only in recent decades have Asian populations been allowed to migrate to the white nations within the Pacific and Indian Ocean basins in any sizable numbers. Instead, choosing whiteness over British subjects allowed for increasing immigration from other parts of Europe. While substantial differences separated the development of each of these colonies, and while their relationship with the United States and Britain remained problematic, there was a strong sense of community between them. Lasting networks were established, broadly shared ideology based on whiteness, the threat of Asian migration, and democracy united this greater Britain while excluding the rest of the British Empire. It was unfortunate for Britain that one of the greatest uniting factors amongst its settler colonies, by focusing primarily on race, undermined the British Empire itself. When the colonies in Britain increasingly focused on the racial qualities of Britishness or whiteness as the bond which tied them together, the specific links of empire had to give way. While the British world was united through racial ties, the British Empire and the concept of imperial citizenship or British subjecthood was devalued. This shift did not necessarily separate the colonies from Britain, but it did mean that colonies increasingly came to see themselves as separate from the empire. This also allowed more flexibility to incorporate the United States within a wider English-speaking world. Alienating other groups within the empire, like Indians or straight Chinese, in the process further reduced the significance of empire and British subjecthood in defining colonial identities. Educated Indian subjects, in particular, drew on the exclusionary policies covered in this chapter, in this paper, when rejecting existence as second-class citizens of empire in favor of being first-class citizens of an Indian nation. This analysis of reactions to Chinese labor thus provides a clear understanding of why nationalism so quickly seemed to replace imperialism in the colonies from this period onwards. This was not simply a conflict between self-governance and empire, for the Dominion's rejection of imperial citizenship was clearly not a rejection of the networks established through shared Britishness or whiteness. What it reveals is a failure for specifically imperial identity to emerge to combat localized racism in the face of Asian migration. The British world's existence depended on the exclusionary attitude towards Asian migration and the subsequent breakdown in imperial identity.